G'day team, Jordy here with the Two Towers podcast, a Middle-Earth strategy battle game podcast. Uh, I'm Jordy, And I am Albert. And on today's episodes, we're, we're mixing it up. We're changing the format. Uh, we've brought on an illustrious guest to talk in depth and do a little bit of a deep dive on what we have established firmly over the past uh, couple of podcasts, uh, which is the, the best tournament uh, on the calendar. Uh, I believe, Geordie, you were saying in the universe. Is that right? I believe in the universe. I, yeah. I don't think anything can hold a candle. I know Mars do some good ones, but... Yeah, look, the, the commute isn't really worth it at the end of the day, though. So, <laughs> um, in our own uh, in our own neighbourhood, I think it's uh, above and beyond far away the best. So, uh, we've got Tim. Tim, who uh, is uh, the, the, the brains behind the operation. Is that fair to say, Tim? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Well, for this year, but I like um, also Josh Coleman also do, deserves a big shout out. Um, yeah, so really nice well, but standing on th- the shoulders of giants, as it were. Yes, yes, but um, yeah, this year he kind of threw the reins to me a bit more to to uh, yeah run the show a bit. So yeah, awesome. Okay, so before we jump in to talk about sill in a bit more depth um tim did you want to just introduce yourself uh maybe give people a little bit of background in terms of um how you came into the hobby and how you came into um being a to as well yeah yeah sure um well i've been playing the game quite a long time now <laughs> probably one of the more older people in the in the game now but uh, i've started playing back in 2005. Um, so the game been going for a couple of years and I kind of seen, yeah, things around about it. Like I kind of seen a bit of you know, like games workshop stuff around, but I hadn't really got into it. And then kind of as, as a kind of reward almost for finishing year 12, me and a couple of mates kind of got into it, went and bought the Minds of Mario starter box and split it between ourselves and um and that was the start and then i was kind of in it for good after that so yeah I, I definitely those early years there were kind of a lot of tournaments started cropping up and i played it in a lot of tournaments there and then um had a bit of a a little bit of a break in there but when the the hobbit um kind of rules came out i i got back into it again in a major way and it was then that I kind of like I was attending a few events and yeah I was just kind of looking at the way events were done at that time and I just kind of thought to myself that like you know I kept thinking when I attend events as well if I ran one I'd do this and I could do do this I'd like to do something like this and I just kind of yeah, it was really kind of drawn to the idea of running an event and organizing for people and so that people could have fun. And I also wanted to try and do something because I'm I'm over the west of Melbourne and there are a lot of, at that time, most of the players were all over in the east and I kind of wanted to do something over my side of the city. Um, so, yeah, I just started running a couple of small events at my local store and, and then got a bit of taste of it and kind of, yeah, went from there. So that's really cool i was going to say first of all i i am impressed i didn't know the tournaments were were sort of so prevalent back in the day Mm. um but it sounds like you know you've got the to blood in your veins you were you were on it from the start 
Yeah, well, I, well, I was attending a lot of tournaments. I, I wasn't really r- running them back then, but um, and back then there was also the tournaments that were run kind of like by Games Workshop, um, which they kind of stopped doing, and then so it was kind of then put onto the community to kind of run their own events. So there was, you know, a few prominent people in the community like uh, yeah, Kylie and Josh who were, who were running a lot of events. So early on there kind of wasn't really like a need for any more events, but then as the years went by, a kind of gap opened up and, you know, I kind of thought, well, I might as well give it a go. And then it well- went from there. Yeah, this is that's also interesting to me because I wasn't around in the Games Workshop tournament days. I, I just want to ask for someone who had the lived experience. Mm-hmm. How how would they and how does it compare to like the, I guess the community organized stuff? Yeah, well, because they used to they, they were pretty big events and they used to you know because they used to do things for all their systems you know forty k and and fantasy as well and so had a bit more of a kind of convention vibe to them not so not as kind of you know like almost homely as some of our tournaments are these days um and yeah it was very much kind of like I, there was the the gt which was the grand tournaments which was supposed to be like kind of super competitive but most of them were more centered around yeah just getting people to come in and play and even though it was a tournament competition someone won there was kind of more uh, yeah, focus on it being kind of promotion for the game and getting people, you know, to play in the game and, um, and you know, they'd advertise it in all their stores and try and get people to come along. So, yeah, they, they were good. But um, I think when you have a community-run tournament, it's it can be, yeah, a bit more focused and a bit more kind of uh, effort put into, like, the, the nitty-gritty of it and, and the details and stuff to make it more fun for the players of that particular game. And also, I'm assuming, you know, like there's there's got to be a split there in terms of just thinking in the context of SIL, like SIL's a very unique um, tournament mm. that I couldn't ever imagine Games Workshop kind of running because they they kind of have to play a little bit more mainstream in terms of like mm-hmm. they've they've created all of yeah. the scenario packs and therefore that's kind of the the lines that you have to color within and so um that's really interesting i'm i'm interested tim do you see so it sounds like you've you've got a very long career as a competitive player do you um like how do you see yourself in terms of between the hobby side of things so like painting and terrain making and that side of things versus competitive play? Is it like a 50-50 split for you or do you prefer the gaming aspect or do you prefer the hobbying aspect? That, that, that's an interesting question for me because I think it's it's kind of shifted and, and changed a bit over time. I think I think now these days it probably is 50-50 like kind of um, hobby and, and kind of competitive player. But for me, the, the, the biggest part's always been, yeah, the hobby. And, um, you know, I love, I love the hobby of it. You know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm the world's greatest painter, but, you know, I do, I find uh, the painting very therapeutic and um, uh, for me as like, as I 
I'm a teacher, so I can get quite <laughs> stressful times. And just coming home and doing some painting can be really relaxing. And yeah, and I really love, oh, I got into the terrain making early on and I've, I've always loved that, making uh, boards and terrain. And, and there was a period there a few years ago where I was really into making display boards and I love making big elaborate display boards at my house. I have about, you know, I think I counted them up the other day. I think I got 10 or 11 display boards sitting around my house, running around a ro- running out of room to put them all. Um, so yeah, for me, it's what I've always been really into that hobby aspect and, and then just playing the game. I just love playing the game for the game, you know, not necessarily to, to win or be super competitive. I just love the game and the theme of it. And I think it's only, yeah, it's only really in the recent five years or so um, since the new editions come out, really, that I've kind of, I felt like I've, that I've got to the level where I can't, I am a bit more uh, of a better player and can be a bit more competitive. I never, never seen myself before that as a really super strong competitive player. Uh, but I'm starting to feel a bit more competent and, you know, uh, and I've, yeah, won couple tournaments now um but no, no big ones but yeah yeah i i do remember you uh stealing a minimized win from me but that's okay yeah. i'm not holding a grudge <laughs> um no <laughs> i i find i find that interesting you said you went sort of from the hobby and then sort of went more competitive mm. i i mean my trajectory was not not the opposite per se but mm. i started out like wanting to win the tournaments and just mm. going ham and then the hobby was the aside and then mm. I've sort of flipped that switch. Was it more that you just found that you couldn't compete and once you got a hold of the game and sort of found that you could hold your own, is that, is that when you switched into the competitive, more into the competitive side? Yeah, I think, I think for me it was, it was just never a priority. Like it's not something... Mm that I necessarily wanted it. I just wanted to play and have fun. And if I won, hey, that that's awesome. You know, and I still still always going to try and win, but it wasn't something that was like, you know, I have to go and try and win. And if I don't, you know, I might be a bit disappointed. It was just I I, I want to play and and the winning is a bonus. And, you know, and I think because of that, I always just thought of myself as kind of a mediocre player, you know, that I wasn't really up there with some of the the giants of the game like Kylie and Jeremy and stuff. <laughs> but then, you know, I started when, especially when the new edition came out, I started playing a lot more and going to quite a lot of events. And yeah, I started getting t- told by people that I actually was quite a good player, especially Kylie, who I played with a lot and uh, actually kind of encouraged me to be a bit more competitive and, and said, you know, you've got mm. it within you. You just got to, you know, practice kind of thing or, or um, be coached a bit. And, and yeah, so she almost did kind of coach me up a little bit <laughs> um, over a period of time. And then, yeah, and so then I, um, I'm like, oh, okay, I can actually maybe go and try and win a tournament here or there. That's something I hadn't really considered before. Um, so, yeah, but, yeah, I still, I still... I think of the mindset is that I'd rather just go and play and like, cause I find if, if I get too invested in wanting to try and win, um, that's when I get, mm. I can get, you, know, you get disheartened when you don't kind of thing. 
and yeah, I don't, I don't like that at all. Yeah. I prefer, you know, I want to always enjoy playing the game, whether I win or lose. Um, yeah. Well, it's yeah, you're right. It's so hard because there can be a dozen mm. factors into why you didn't win, and not all of it's just because you played bad or did bad. Sometimes you get the unlucky roll here, or like the bad matchup mm. or bad scenario. So. Yeah, that that's good. So you, you're coming in competitive, but you're just happy to play. I think that's the way to go. But yeah, there have been some tournaments now that I have, especially some bigger ones, um, that I've kind of gone in thinking, okay, I'm going to try and do as well as I can here and kind of put some effort into that. So that's something I, I didn't used to do and that I do do a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Is that the sort of like, Clash of the Titans. Yeah, Clash and tournament. Masters yep. and stuff, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Um, I think that's a that's a really interesting insight. I, I Reflecting, as you were saying, like I, I definitely term myself as that mediocre player that's just turning up to have a great time. So um, who knows? Maybe in years to come, I might be able to develop some level of competitive now. Probably not. Yeah. All, all you need, Albert is plenty of exposure to an international champion of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And you'll be good to go. <laughs> Give well, it, it took time. Me, took me 15 years, Albert, so still There's <laughs> <laughs> plenty of time. It's yeah. not a race. It's not a race. Um, so uh, on that note, we might um, transition across into uh, talking about SIL. And maybe, Tim, if you wanted to just start by... Um, giving uh, our listeners a bit of background, like the history of SIL, how it came about. Um. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, about uh, over 10 years ago now, um, so back when kind of that era I was talking about where the kind of the Games Workshop tournament stopped and there was kind of, it was on the community to try and run events. It was kind of, yeah, there was a real kind of boom of events for a little while and, and so... Yeah, Kyrie was running a few and there was a few other people running some as well. And yeah, Josh was one of the, Josh Conwin was one of the pioneers of that and decided to start up his own event, um, which at that time, it was just a purely another competitive event because no one had kind of conceived of doing anything kind of different at that point. Everything was just competitive, you know, normal competitive tournaments. So Josh, um, Josh decided to start up a, a 650 point tournament. I think he, he picked 650 as a kind of different points value because everything was either like 800 or 500 at that point. So he kind of just wanted the middle of the road. And um, yeah, so he ran that for quite a few years as just a kind of regular competitive event. Uh, and then back in 2018, it would be, uh, he yeah he decided it kind of was things were getting a bit stale and he decided to change it up a bit so he decided instead of being just a straight solo competitive event he would make it a team event so he got everyone to sign up for either the good or evil team uh, and he had yeah a little bit of a, a map with you know a couple of special rules. Um, and yeah but not really uh, any kind of story to it but um yeah that was kind of the f- and he had the silmarils kind of given out to players uh randomly that then could be uh, that would act as a palantir and then would either be given um to a player or um 
uh, yeah, or they, if they lost the game, then they would have to pass on to their opponent. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of the first foray into the kind of the narrative tournament uh, in Melbourne. And, um, and I kind of, I, I wasn't, I played in that one, uh, but I provided a lot of terrain for it. And I was kind of, kind of helping out a fair bit, just kind of on the side, you know, not officially, but I ended up just being a fair bit of help for that tournament. And then, so, um, so Josh came to me and said, Hey, I'm looking for someone to be a second TO, you know, to run still with, cause I'm finding a bit much just do all by myself. Uh, and I would like someone else to do it with me. And would you like to be that person? And I said, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, the next year we ran in 2019, we ran the return to Numenor still, which was, yeah, had a much more of a, a bigger theme of the island of Numenor had risen from the ocean and everyone was coming back to claim it. And yeah, we had, we had two, we had a good and evil team again, and we had special rules on all the tables and we had special rules that the players could uh, uh, get um, and uh, yeah, could earn from all the tables and, and other events that happened. And yeah, that was really cool. And I was really like, you know, I helped, Josh kind of came up with the idea, but, you know, I helped him develop it and I was really inspired by that. And I loved the idea of this narrative tournament of telling a story through the, the games. And yeah, so I, I really looked forward to, to doing another one. So that was a little bit delayed because then COVID hit um, and the 2020 event didn't happen. Um, but yeah, Josh was then basically like, well, what you, you run the 2021 event because I'm going to try and run a, a competitive seal again called Sealed GT. Um, and, yeah, so I got to work planning that. And then, of course, we had more COVID. And so that got delayed and rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled. <laughs> and then eventually got to do it again, uh, this year in 2022. And, yeah, it was really good. So yeah, Josh let me kind of take full charge of that. And I, I did a lot of the planning preparation with his support still for that. Um, and, and a lot of the planning of the story and stuff myself. So yeah, that's how we kind of got to today. I just wanted to jump in and say, um, bloody well done on, uh, keeping the, the fire alive <laughs> through all of those, um, delays, because I know each like the first time it got delayed, there was a lot of interstate, folk mm. that had to kind of pull out and you know the, the delay after delay but um it was great i mean i had to pull out in the end last minute but um it was great to see um that the event actually went it went ahead and from everything that i've heard sounded absolutely awesome so um well done on that for sure yeah it was it was definitely a blast but i i wanted to touch on some actually very interesting things that that, that i found so as to me, Lord of the Rings tournaments throughout the year, most of them actually tend to be like funsies or thematic mm. or have an interesting spin on it. But you had said that once upon a time that just wasn't the 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 norm. No, no, not not um not really. Yeah, because I think to begin with, like there was those games workshop tournaments, and they were you know very vanilla and uh. Yeah, so when the community started doing it themselves, they were just emulating that. 
Yeah, so that, there wasn't much, yeah. I guess, to build off and there yeah. wasn't that um, inspiration yet. Yeah. There used to um, be qu- quite a few kind of creative things happening with scoring that maybe doesn't happen as much anymore uh, to do with uh, like composition scores for lists and and sports scores. A lot of that is kind of compensating for, I, I guess, weaknesses within the game itself, the list building, which have since kind of been addressed um, with war bands and stuff like that because you didn't used to have any of that war oh, bands wow. or any of those. <laughs> you, you could basically... Once upon a time, you could basically take whatever you want as long as it was just good or just evil. Um, wow, okay. Yeah. Oh, mm. I'm glad I wasn't a part of that tournament. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I find really funny is the first sill that I ever attended was that um, Josh's first ever crack at the good versus evil, which mm. I had thought at that point that that was, the again, the norm for sill. So, mm. so how long ago was that? That wasn't too long ago. Yeah, that was yeah, twenty eighteen, I think. Yeah. So I guess with with that in mind, do you want to tell us um, sort of what SIL is all about nowadays? Yeah. Well, so the kind of philosophy I've kind of developed for like the last event that we did was is it's it's I want it to be about a tournament that's in you know embracing the roots of the game and trying to tell a story through the games played. I feel like, you know, where, where our game comes from, it comes from the stories of Tolkien and, and the and the films. And yeah, I very much wanted to kind of get into that spirit of we play this yeah. game to kind of tell a story and to And even the the conception of the game, I don't think yeah. they thought Army to Army was going to be the the way it's played. They were yeah. kind of thinking, let's play a fellowship um scenario campaign through and then let's play like a Rohan scenario campaign through and stuff like that. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. So yeah. And I also like the idea of having or still having like some competitiveness in there, but uh, you know, supplementing that with with fun, uh, you know, gameplay elements that are a bit different and uh, you know, just mi- mixing it up a bit from from the normal kind of uh, you know, standard taught, you know this one-on-one tournament so um look i full disclosure obviously i wasn't there on the day but from everything that i heard and saw it sounded like there like the 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 theme that you ran with on the day was quite involved and very complex so i'm interested in how you kind of came a came up with the idea and then how you developed that and kind of built the whole day around that theme so maybe you can talk about you know that whole process because it's kind of like does a design um Mm. exercise right that you're going through and building this maybe not design but like you're writing a narrative essentially um so talk through talk through the process yeah okay so um i guess it started with when i uh, worked with josh on the numenor tournament of the the yeah 2019 um, and he kind of, he came up with that idea, um, uh, and, and I, of course, you know, helped him workshop some of the nitty gritty of it, but, um, yeah, I, I, I was really inspired by that and I liked the idea of it being kind of, I wanted it to be more centered around a certain kind of point in time because, you know, with the Numenor, 
uh, rising or taking certain liberties with, you know, kind of uh, inventing a kind of invent. We were setting that pre War of the Rings, and of course, so we had to take some liberties there. But you know, I wanted to kind of. I thought uh, I wanted to kind of, yeah, center around it at more point of time where, um, yeah, more of the armies might be available for people and yeah kind of a, a point in time that would kind of fit into the story uh without having to take you know too many too many liberties with what's kind of what, what was going on so i figured like i really liked the idea of going forward into the fourth age because that's something that wasn't hasn't really been fleshed out so yeah so i decided to do it uh around the fourth age because i thought that would be quite uh easy for a lot of armies to be able to still be taken and not and still fit into that theme of that time period and a lot of characters to be able to be taken even if the uh the characters were were dead or left because you know there will be a lot of kind of uh extra characters that can kind of take up those mantles so i thought it would be something that wouldn't have uh yeah too many restrictions um yeah, but at the same time, I wanted it to kind of really fit into this theme of, of what's happening. So I, uh, once I kind of decided on the theme, then I went through kind of all the army lists and all the models and kind of thought carefully about, yeah, what what would still be around, you know, looked up some stuff from my, my talking books and um, and then, yeah, and then I kind of, I came up with a list of characters that I, that, you know, would are dead or whatever, but thought you know i didn't want to limit people too much so that i they could still be taken because i thought well there's probably a kind of a suitable proxy here that they could be so i kind of wear those but then i i took some out which i thought what couldn't be really the theme of the model didn't really fit a, a proxy of a, a replacement character like sauron of course and uh, and uh, Elrond and a few of those. Um, you're, you're speaking my language there, Tim. Uh, <laughs> I got very excited when you said the word proxy. Do you yeah. want to maybe run through some of the... Because the, they were actually quite important to the story, some of the the characters that you sort of drummed up that could could be sticking around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I kind of didn't want to get rid of uh, all the kind of magic casters. So I thought, you know, I still need to let people take the wizards um so so well, well who could gandalf and saruman be then and then of course you know the obvious answer is the blue wizards uh which some people who know a bit more in depth about tolkien know about he he wrote a few brief mentions about these two blue wizards so there were five Istari that came to middle earth and two of them were the blue wizards and they headed off to the east and then nothing else was heard from them ever um and yeah so i thought yeah, I, I kind of came up with an idea that that one of them had turned bad, so it could be represented by the Saruman model, and one of them had turned uh, good, so oh, well, still good, I should say. And uh, so he's ridden back to Minas Tirith to warn everyone of what's going on, uh, and because the evil one is rally, I said the evil one was rallying all the kind of. Uh, evil men of the east and taken up the Isengard forces, and yeah. So I, I also the as well. 
yeah, we had the the good in the previous seals. We had the good and the evil uh, teams, uh, and so I wanted to, um, yeah. So Josh had had the idea for the seal that we were going to run in twenty twenty. We were going to do uh, we we're going to do five teams, and he'd had uh, kind of team captains and things that we were starting to organise that, and then that fell through. So I wanted to kind of continue that idea. So you know, uh, I I did. I uh, thought four themes, that's four teams because that kind of fitted into the theme of, you know, I wanted to represent the reunited kingdom. So it wasn't just Gondor anymore. Aragorn's now ruling over Gondor and Rohan and the North and, and the Shire and stuff like that. I was a bit disappointed that no one took Hobbits because I thought that would be a really cool <laughs> part of the story. But, um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the reunited kingdom and then, of course, you know, the Mordor, the remnants of Mordor are scattered about, but, you know, coming back together to fight. And then you've got the Brew Wizard who's rallying uh, the Fallen Realms uh, to uh, fight. And then, of course, you know, the Elves and Dwarves. The Elves are still around and the Dwarves have got their own kingdom, so they kind of just fit together in the Free Peoples team. So, yeah, that's kind of like, it was kind of like the, the mechanics and, like so I came up with the the idea of fourth age, the story and the setting, and then the kind of the mechanics in the story kind of I developed together, you know, bit by bit what kind of one fitted the other. Yeah, well, I like the the fourth age and then four teams. I think that's a nice little touch. But I think the increasing it to four teams, I think, was really, really good. Mm. Like having half the room antagonizing the other half of the room, it's pretty funny. But having three quarters of the room jump on against one team who's winning, that's that's where it really shines. Through tall poppy syndrome, nobody can get too far ahead. <laughs> and and part of that, Tim, was that because I I attended the the 2019 um, event and I I contributed heavily to the downfall of the evil side by losing every single one of my games. <laughs> yes, yeah, and no, that was actually the first tournament. Uh, that I attended getting back into the hobby. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, uh, having lost everything, it was still a, a fantastic and amazing experience, but was, was that part of the reason that you wanted to have more teams so you could perhaps, um, uh, like stop one team from getting too far ahead, so to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, that was kind of the idea. I think we found like Josh and I found that with quite, you know, quite a large number of players and the two teams, then, yeah, it, it, it just became a little bit too one-sided. Like, it was too easy for one team to get ahead because I think in that event, the good team got kind of got ahead early and then just stayed ahead <laughs> for, the, for most of the event. So, um, yeah, it was the, uh, the idea was to kind of yeah, add a bit more variety there and... And also to help encourage a bit more team spirit because, yeah, when you've got 20 people on a team, it's very easy to just kind of fade into the background and it just becomes like a normal event again. So it was kind of to try and encourage the teams to be, yeah, a bit more, uh, yeah, together and working together kind of thing. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to point out because I think you're right. Like when you're on a team of like 10 people, your win still is super important. But when there's 20, you maybe you just you just get yeah, like the disenfranchised and be like, well, it doesn't matter if I lose. I'm I'm a drop in the ocean. So is is that like a, a, a was there a numbers balance you were trying to strike or 
Um, no, not specifically. I think, um, as I said, I I went with four teams for this event just because I think because uh, yeah, I wanted more than two, but I felt four fitted the theme quite nicely. Like that that was more four as opposed to five or three. You know, was because it, it just fitted the theme that I was kind of going yep, with, yep. you know, and future stills that I do maybe, you know, might not necessarily have four teams, you know, maybe have more, maybe have less, but I kind of let the theme dictate that a little bit. But I think, yeah, more, I think, I think four, especially for the numbers of this event ended up being was, was a good balance. Like it was, yeah, not too many, not too few. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, exactly. I, I think 10, Around ten a team is is a good number, yeah. Because you get you probably get a pretty good cross section of the gaming community in that ten group of people as well. Like you, you'll probably have a few, um, you know, top tier players, a couple of the mediocres, and then a couple of you know me's um, down the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it up the rear. <laughs> um, that's okay. So. Um, Beyond the the teams, though, um, there were also uh, quite a few different um, special rules that you kind of built in in terms of buffs for teams. Did you want to talk a little bit about how you developed those and, and how you balance them? Yeah, so the idea from the beginning was um, uh, similar to how... We we'd done it at the the Numenor event where we we'd had a, had a map and we had people kind of uh, gain control of regions, kind of you know each table representing a region. So I wanted to do that that again. Um, uh, but yeah, but but so because we had the four teams, you know, I kind of wanted uh, to kind of have some special rules based on uh, how much of how many regions each team control because I want the idea of, you know, these four factions in the fourth age are all vying for control of middle earth. Now it's kind of up for grabs. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of represent this that idea of trying to uh, get control of um, kind of more land uh, and, and so getting benefits from that. And so, yeah, that's where I kind of, um, I had this vague idea of kind of how I wanted it to work. And then so I kind of sat down with Josh and we kind of workshopped uh, some rules. And, and that's where we kind of then came up with when we were talking about the different special rules we could give teams, we came up with the idea of, oh, hang on, why don't we make it if the team has got too many regions that it's actually a detriment to them because mm. they're too far ahead? Uh, and I think that was a, a really clever idea i think that josh might have actually thought of that to begin with and um uh yeah and so then we we decided to have yeah a really a kind of detriment rule for each of the teams so we made a rule if they had too many regions we had a rule if they had uh a decent amount of regions uh and then we had rule really good rules that if they uh got really low we only had like one or two regions um uh and yeah a lot of those ended up well we didn't end up using all of them but we, we used quite a few of them in the end which was yeah really cool no that and that called back to what you had mentioned in in one of the past seals where 
I, th- I believe there were only buffs at that stage. So good yeah. got a bit of an advantage yeah. and they were just able to leverage that. So this was a cool counterbalance yeah. to, to that. Yeah, because it stopped yeah. that snowball effect, right? Like you kind of have yeah, that. Yeah, itself. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what we were trying to counteract, which we, yeah, we had in the previous years that yeah, one team gets ahead and just keeps going. Um, so, yeah, and it really did. It really did do that in this event. It kind of like um, there was a couple of teams that kind of got ahead and then kind of came back down again, and then a different team got ahead and then they came back down again. And yeah, it was it was um, yeah, I was really pleased with the kind of uh, the the way it went in terms of of kind of the scores throughout the throughout the event. I I you know I because I hadn't kind of done this like this before, I was worried that, you know, one team would get ahead and stay ahead. Um, but in the end, yeah, it worked really well. There was like the, the, the Fallen Realms was ahead for a while and then... Mm, they, Mordor, they sprinted, yeah. yeah. Mordor got a bit of a leg up and then Reunited Kingdoms was doing really good. And then kind of all... Yeah, no, I think they got up and then they almost lost it towards the end like they they kind of they, they took the lead from the fallen realms and were doing really well and then they almost in the second last round they almost screwed it up Oof. so <laughs> close yeah there was really good to and fro um even even the fallen realms who just started out yeah oh, sorry not the fallen realms the free the peoples who started peoples, out yeah horribly still managed in the second day to to really claw it back yeah they were um they they were way behind on the first day and then in the middle of the second day they were at one point they were even i think it was even with mordor or one of the other teams who'd been doing reasonably well for the whole time they just managed to to get back up there so and they were also down uh, a couple of players in the end due to due to some dropouts so they did amazingly well for <laughs> the amount of players they had yeah so you had these heaps of cool special rules and a lot a lot must have been thought ahead, right? So I guess I, I just want to ask, like, how how far in advance do you plan these tournaments, um, and how many people like were involved? Because you've you've mentioned that it's you and Josh. Would did anyone else sort of join in on the, on the creative process? Uh, yeah, well, we basically, well, Josh has kind of set the precedent for me is that we start planning the next sill as soon as the previous one is finished. <laughs> And he, he's been very good about having, like, the Facebook event up literally days after the previous event is done. Um, so, yeah, well, so this, this event that just happened started planning back in 2019 uh, after the last seal. Oh, well, yeah. So three years in the making. Yeah, yeah. well, I guess that's not completely true because I guess we are planning for the 2020 event, so which then this event wasn't exactly that event we did it it, it was so i guess when that one was cancelled um we kind of just put shelved that uh and then later in 2020 when things were starting to look good again um josh was like well yeah do you want to plan one again for i i'd already had i think even before that one I'd already come up with, even when that one was still going ahead, I'd already come up with the idea of the fourth age for the next one. And I told, I told Josh about that 
Uh, and so, yeah, when things were starting to look again in 2020, he was like, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and just organize uh, that fourth age one you had for 2021? Um, so, yeah, so that was, so yeah, late 2020. So, so more than six months uh, ahead of when the event was. So, yeah, I think there's definitely pre-planning that, that can happen, you know, up to a year before the event, but I think it's kind of six months ahead is when you really start to get things rolling in terms of getting people to sign up and making payments and, and things like that. Uh, and yeah. And then I kind of guess in, in the, a couple of months before is when you really start to kind of ramp up. That's when I guess, I think it was a, a month or so before the event where I, uh, sat down with Josh and worked out all the special rules and started planning out kind of how exactly how the day would go um, or the days would go. And then, yeah, and then in the weeks leading up to it, especially just, yeah, getting lists and um, uh, working out, yeah, all the logistics and things that need to happen and, and organising terrain and stuff. So, yeah, that probably all happens in, yeah, two to three months before the event in staggered ways, whatever. Um, yeah, it needs to happen first, and depending on what you're running. And, um, yeah, I guess, it, so it was mainly, yeah, me and, and Josh involved behind the scenes. As I said, I, you know, I took uh, charge this year, but I um, bounced a lot of things off Josh and, and came up with all the special rules and things, you know, with him, meeting up with him. Uh, and I also got a lot of support from uh, my partner, Tatiana, who um, was kind of, uh, you know, an ex extra organisational TO, you speak, not so much to do with the game, but, you know, helped me with the kind of logistics of working things out, especially helped me kind of, was a good sounding board, especially with all the kind of COVID restrictions and things and, and how to navigate all that. And uh, and then she embarked on her, her own organisation project of deciding to want to cook over 100 cupcakes to provide to everyone at the event. So um, that, was, that was almost an event in itself, <laughs> doing that. <laughs> that. And to me, that was actually a really, really good touch. I, <laughs> I loved that cupcake. It, it, it's like the novelty, but it's also just like they were delicious. Mm -hmm. So... Every tournament from now on, uh, look, I might be expecting a cupcake. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure that um, she'll want to have another go. But yeah, she actually um, she bought herself a uh, a stand mixer. Used as excuse to buy herself a fancy KitchenAid stand mixer um, last year, um, and of course, you know, didn't finally got to use it for what it was actually bought for. <laughs> this year so yeah it was good um yeah but she like just having like someone extra just to kind of yeah help you out with like she did a lot of the cutting up of things and and just kind of you know little uh jobs and stuff like that so yeah having extra people just to help you out even if they're not really organizing, can be really useful as well. And it, uh, I suppose it, it, it really shows on the day as well, like just mentioning cutting things out, like you have um, 
next to each of the boards, you've got like a rundown of the scenario, but then also, um, you know, a map of the terrain and what counts as what, which is just a really lovely uh, kind of user-friendly thing. So you're not ever faced with a situation where you're trying to negotiate mid-game with an opponent, whether that's difficult terrain or not, like you've got that all there. So, um, and that, those things, I imagine, uh, I'm not sure if you factor that into the the, the timing, but I, I assume it takes up quite a bit of time, actually, when, when it comes down to it, right? Mm, yeah, that does take quite a bit of time. And um, some of that is kind of last minute because I, I, I take all the pictures of the boards kind of like the, the, the night before when we're setting up and then kind of just... Um, I've got I've got the templates all there ready, but then I have to put the pictures in and work out all the terrain stuff, kind of just the night before. So, yeah, there's there's stuff that kind of has to be kind of done last minute, and you just have to yeah make sure you factored in when you're going to do that, mm. and and yeah um, have your kind of time planned out to be able to do that stuff. Um, yeah, it's interesting you bring up the the signs on the the boards, the guides. Um, that was something that I kind of thought of myself. That was, yeah, something that I, I mentioned early on about, you know, I originally got into tournaments because um, I we kept thinking of things that, you know, I wanted to do if I ran an event and I thought would, would be really helpful for players. And that's one thing I always kept thinking of when I went to tournaments was, you know, like there's always disputes about terrain and there's always, yeah, people not sure about things on the boards and stuff. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, have everything as kind of clear cut as possible for the players. So they're just going to be able to just step into the game and play and not worry about all these extra things that, you know, you normally in a in a casual environment, you just, you know, chat about and it will be fine. But in a tournament environment, you want things to be as kind of, um, uh, what's the word, you know, formal and uh, black and white as possible. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got two players that could be coming from very different backgrounds uh, and you want them to be able to, you know, play a game and enjoy it uh, without having to worry about this nitty-gritty of differences of opinion and stuff. So I wanted to, yeah, that's something that I was quite passionate about doing that I, um, yeah, I put a lot of energy into when I did it for the, the Numenor tournament the first time uh and then so yeah kind of had to <laughs> had to follow up on that again for for this year um uh yeah but it's something I'm even doing for like just when I run a a just a regular competitive tournament as well I'm doing the same thing I think it's really important yeah, they were they were really good, and they probably saved you and Josh some uh, saved your legs a bit because you would have been called over to tables every every five ten minutes. Um, and I think I think it's definitely probably the way forward for competitive tournaments, to be honest. Because having the terrain like laid out for you, like you said, in black and white, can really just end those negotiations because it's no longer like oh, I kind of think it's a you know five up in the way, but uh, if you think it's a four up, I don't know. Now it's just like nuts. Nah, it's a four up too bad sort of thing. Mm, yeah. And and I, I, that's another thing I, I felt because um, with some of us older players, uh, when they're used to like, you know, early editions of the game, everything was just a four up in the way and that was it. 
and when they brought mm. up brought out the variable in the ways, one of our older players never really kind of latched onto that. We just kept doing everything for up in the way because yep. that's used to. Yep. So for me, it was like, well, I want that to be used a bit more, you know, because I think it actually mm. is a kind of interesting part of the game. Helps vary the terrain a bit. So. Yeah, that was a way of saying of make forcing people to use those different yeah. in the way roles. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely the the kind of person that just you know defaults to the four up, even even when there's a fence, and we know now that that's like a three plus. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there's quite a lot to consider, especially you know running any tournament requires a large amount of logistics, and I think. Um, from what we've discussed, running a narrative-based tournament then just adds another layer of complexity on top. So, Tim, is there anything, any words of wisdom or advice that you can offer to uh, any TOs out there that um, want to try and run a, um, a narrative-based uh, event like SIL? Yeah, I think the, the key thing that I've kind of uh, realised, especially in kind of planning out and thinking and, and running this year's event is uh, and, and a couple of other events that I've kind of been to that other people have run is that less is more. You don't want like special rules and events that happen and all this stuff. It's really cool and really adds some fun extra element to the game. But if you put too much of it in, too much extra stuff for the player to have to remember, then it just becomes overwhelming and and it loses its novelty because the player can't re- remember everything and it's like, um, yeah, you, you're like, well, you're not really kind of getting the coolness out of those those different rules of the story out of it because you, you, you're forgetting it half the time and then you're like, um, you, you're remembering one thing and then it's like, oh, no, oh, there's also this thing and you forget about the original thing you're thinking about. And, um, yeah, I went to one event where it had, like, it wasn't exactly a narrative event, but it had lots of kind of special rules and things. And it was just it was just a, a bit too much for my liking because I was like, you know, this is really cool. I want to get into this. But then there was another thing I had to think about and then there was another thing I had to think about. And, and it was kind of like it just lost that novelty for me. So for what was really forefront in my mind was not having too many things for players to think about, but uh, still having enough in there that would tell the story and help kind of make this more than just a playing a regular game of Middle Earth. Um, So yeah, one thing I definitely try to do also is build it up a bit. So started the event with not, not many special rules at all in play. There was just the one on each table. And the kind of the team-based special rules didn't come in until the second round based on yeah, how many regions they had. Uh, and, then, and then once players had time to kind of get used to that, then in the later rounds I had a couple of special events which had a, a global special rule that kind of affected everyone. And then I, I figured, you know, that was kind of enough. You know, there was three at any one time player might have three, maybe four things to think, diff, new things to think about. And that's probably kind of getting to the limit of, of the amount of things that you want, uh, extra things you want the players to think about. So um, 
that's that's what I think is is really key. And 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 to keep those things really, you know, themed. You know, if you're doing a narrative event, so think about don't. I think the tendency also is, you know, oh, let's do this and let's do this and let's do this. And, you know, it's like, well, pick one of those two, one of or two of those things and really focus in on them and think about how can you kind of, uh, yeah, theme this to, to what you want to do. Um, it sounds like it's um, so much of it comes back to that initial idea that you have mm. and kind of, fact checking against like does this reinforce the narrative that i want to tell in the yeah. event yes no and 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 it's like like you're saying um that's really interesting it's like the what is the minimum amount of special rules or interventions that i need to make to then tell the narrative yeah. that's a fantastic piece of advice i yeah. love that yeah so the um the thing for me was it was all or what the what are the rules were all themed about this idea of yeah the four teams trying to get as much control over Middle Earth as they could. And it was all about them, uh, yeah, trying to gain control. And then, you know, the, their specials when they had too many regions were very themed about what happens when that army spreads themselves too thin and, and what's the kind of thematic thing for that team that kind of fits um, what would happen if they've spread too thin. Um, yeah, and, and the and the special rules on each of the tables were like, well, this table is a certain region of Middle Earth and we've put a certain scenario onto this table. So what's a rule that kind of fits what this region is and what scenario you're playing on it? So that was very much about finding an intersection between those two things. Yeah, it was really, it, you, you're right in mentioning that, you know, you, you put as much emphasis on theme through as little rules as you could, because you kind of tricked me, really. There was kind of just like two sets of special rules throughout the whole event. But to me, like theme was just oozing at every point. So that's very, it's very true what you've, what you've said, I guess. Mm. Suppose it, but, you know, a special rule doesn't necessarily build the narrative so much as the collective will to share <laughs> a narrative right like if you've got 40 people in the room that want to build this narrative that's a pretty powerful um force right so um and it i, I think part of it comes down to i guess the legacy of sill although it's interesting that you know sill as a narrative-based tournament doesn't go back that far and yet it's kind of in my mind steeped in in legend <laughs> um, um but it is that thing of you know if if you set up the the narrative from the outset and people buy into that then i think everyone's going to have a really great time so I, do, do you think tim that um like, have you ever explicitly said anywhere with Sill, like, this is a, a narrative themed event, or is it, is that more driven through word of mouth, do you think? Um, I, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I think, well, I do kind of say it through, you know, all the kind of publicity of it says that. And, and of course, yeah, one thing you've got me thinking about, which I think is another good point piece of advice is the players pack so that's the kind of the first thing that players are kind of going to engage with so i think yeah 
thinking back to it now, I think it is, if you're doing a narrative event, making sure your theme uh, really comes through in the players pack um, and kind of what players have to think about. And, um, but yeah, uh, it's really important because I think, yeah, you, you like you said, you want all your players to come along, you know, with that idea that this is a themed event and and kind of you know participating it in a way that it is a themed event, so that that creates the theme because the players are all just you know buying into it. So I think one thing, yeah, that comes to mind now that you've just said that is that like, you know, the way I wrote the praise pack with the rules and stuff in it is that, you know, you had the four teams and you had to pick your particular character in the team and you had to then, if that character wasn't, you had to write a kind of story about that character to fit into fourth age. And if you were using a proxy, you had to explain that story-wise. And and then I kind of, I put, once people would pick their teams, I put them into those team chats on Facebook. And I think that certainly fostered and encouraged a lot of that uh, theming because players were kind of then bouncing off each other and saying, oh, what if I use this hero? What, what could that be? Or, you know, can if I use that character, is, is that okay? And, yeah, and, um, yeah, and I think, like, some of the more uh, thematically-minded players were kind of posting things in the chat, you know, asking me questions, saying, can I do this, can I do that? And that was encouraging the, those players that maybe hadn't thought as thematically before to go, oh, okay, well, what if I do this, what if I do that? So, yeah, I think it's just, in, you know, trying to really encourage that theme early on from the moment you advertise the event through all your kind of um, publicity of it and even before the event, because then, yeah, I think that's a really important thing you said that prayers coming to the event with that in mind, it, that creates the theme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that you brought up the team chats too, because of course my, uh, those who listen to the potty, I was on team Mordor, but I was actually initially team fallen realms and as well as uh, adding to the theme, those team chats really, <laughs> really beat, be, built like a team camaraderie. Um, for example, uh, the Fallen Realms, like I think you initially titled it like Fallen Realms, uh, yeah, SIL yeah. 2021 or slash 22 yeah. uh, team. We very quickly swapped it to Camels and Crossbows <laughs> as our team name. <laughs> um, and we swapped the emoji to like a giant camel. And every time someone entered the group or posted something or something, we all just like threw a camel at them. And it was so you good. You even came up with with a, a collective nickname, Camel Bros. <laughs> <laughs> you were the so, only team that did that, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So there was there was none of that going on in the free people's chat. It was all very well. There very was similar. definitely some camaraderie going in the other team chats, but no, no one kind of got to that level of renaming. <laughs> 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 it is it is an interesting point though because um you know tournament uh kind of lives and dies on the day itself and having that team chat in the lead up is a really great way for a tournament to have kind of an extended life um in terms of just where it inhabits people's kind of uh mindset um so again i think that that uh, if you're doing anything team-based in terms of a tournament it's such a great way 
way to prime people so that they're not going in cold on the day of like, oh, are you on my team or um, who's on my team? And, and you can actually go straight to the people that you've been chatting to on Facebook and be, you know, have a chat about their army. So um, again, kind of galvanizing those people before they, before they even rock up to the event. I think that's something I'm just trying to think back to when we were doing the 2020 event, we first had the teams and for that one, we kind of assigned teamed captains and I think they kind of created their own kind of chats for that event. And then that's something I saw could be really beneficial. Um, so that's something I'd, I, I kind of made sure to kind of, yeah, create and moderate a bit myself for this event um, so that it, yeah, it was something that was, yeah, really key and, um, yeah, it, it, a kind of important place to kind of get information about the event so that people were engaging in it. Yeah. A really good point that you make there as well, Tim, that you were the kind of the moderator on each of the, the group chats because it meant that, you know, any time that you're putting any list building restrictions in place, um, there's always going to be questions from players in terms of, can I do this? Can I do that? So great that there's kind of some targeted forums where that discussion can occur and you can be across things so that you're not getting any um, lists that don't really conform with what you want to happen on the day when people arrive. And it was, and it was through those chats too that I was, you know, was able to kind of make some adjustments of kind of things that I kind of overlooked. Um, I think it was even you, Geordie, that alerted me to the fact that uh, Fallen Realms is maybe whacking a bit without some of the ring rates in there. So uh, I made that adjustment. But yeah, I went back and thought that was a bit of an oversight and made that adjustment to, to allow you guys to have those ring rates. And, and I think that really helped. Yeah, I think, and that's it. I'd like, like you said, it's just an oversight. You've got so much to plan that something's gonna going to miss. And I think you'd maybe said in the players pack or something that, Mordor gets all the ring raids. Mm. And then I was sort of like, well, Fallen Realms kind of lacks heroes full stop. Mm. So then to for them to lose their magic and then their, you know, one of the, you know, like Eastlings have what two named heroes yeah, yeah. at this point in time. It, it was like a, it would it was a huge blow, especially as someone who was initially planning to be yeah. Eastlings. Yeah. Well, that's something where I was like, I kind of went theme first. And yeah. kind of didn't necessarily weigh that up with 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 balance. And then when I went back and thought about it, was like, oh yeah, that's actually I've I've I actually crippled that team quite a bit without there. I should do something about that. <laughs> um, and and that was actually yeah a little a, a change that yeah I definitely agreed needed to be made. So yeah, and look, come all flying back home after the great defeat. That's there's theme in that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So I guess. I, I want to ask, like, what's sort of the most, because you've run a few tournaments at this point, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned um, and were able to sort of apply to SIL? Preparation. Preparation is key. <laughs> That's the one thing I've learned, uh, not only as a TO, but as a kind of tournament a veteran. Uh, yeah, you, you, you want to have done as much as you possibly can before the day. And you want to be doing as little as you as you can on the actual day for for getting things organized. Um, and I think what people sometimes don't realize is that 
when you're really well prepared and organized, it's, it's invisible to the players. It just seems like a good event. And the, the, the amount of kind of organization and preparation that's gone in to make that event run that smoothly, you know, you can't see it because the event just runs smoothly. And, and I think that's the key of a good event. If, it, if, if you can't see what's kind of gone behind there, it's, it's, it's clear that there's a lot of work that's gone into that and um, that's a really good event. I, but I think if, you know, if you're not organized, it can become quite clear to your players that, you know, <laughs> maybe things uh, aren't, uh, you know, haven't been as prepared as much. And it's not necessarily always a bad thing. You know, sometimes you just have a casual uh, event uh you know, and people understand that it's just a bit of fun and, and sometimes there can be a bit of fun in, in players kind of reminding the organiser of certain things. But um, uh, I think if you're running a big event and especially if you're running like a narrative event where you, you've got lots of extra things kind of going on and you want that to really kind of tie together like I, I did, um, you need to put in as much preparation as you can before the day. Uh, and yeah, and just yeah, make sure that you've you've done everything that you can think of that you can do before the day because there's always things that crop up on the day that uh, are unexpected or you overlooked. Um, you can never escape that. So the more that you kind of prepare and and do it, it, the the smoother it's going to run for you. Yeah. Well, that keys in to sort of the next question I had was um, how did the logistics on the day go? Like with putting all the, you know, the the wins and losses and all those numbers back together and crunching them. And then, um, and was it, was it still pretty key to have the two TOs as well? Yeah, that was good. It, it meant that like I could kind of focus on, like organizing things and and if there was any rules questions there was someone else who could be able to to be able to deal with that so that was kind of i think where the that that's the biggest benefit was you got someone else to kind of be a judge and go around and answer questions if if there's a problem uh if and if you need to be kind of working out other things um you can do that um i think one one takeaway i think from this year's event for me, I think I, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew with the kind of <laughs> organizing the round draws each round and like trying to make that themed to, to what was happening and, and um, yeah, where the players were and stuff like that. And I definitely got more efficient as that, uh, as the event went on. But you kind of, the way I'd kind of planned that was, it was kind of only, it was a one person job. <laughs> the way I kind of organized it, I had to just kind of do it myself. It's something maybe for the future looking, trying to, uh, um, yeah, delegate a bit of that work, make it so that, you know, someone else can maybe do the data entry and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So any Victorians out there, Tim <laughs> is taking applications for tournament assistance. <laughs> Yeah, so the more, yeah, the, and I think that's also the bigger the tournament gets, like the, the workload increases because you've got more players to deal with. So I think the, the more, once you get up to that 40 plus, you definitely need someone else there to just yeah help yeah run things. 
No, it was definitely a tall order, but it was it was smooth on the day. I think there was like one round where there was like a minor stuff up of like two minutes. So it was like, you know, as if nothing happened. So really, really well done. Speaking of logistics, Tim, you you mentioned um, briefly um, earlier on the the terrain on the day and wanting to have each table kind of themed around a different kind of geographical location of Middle Earth. Um, that's a very tall order. <laughs> so did you want to talk a, a little bit about the, the, the logistics and how you go about um, organizing um, that board, you know, that, that array of boards, um, you know, how much of it was made by yourself, how much of it was contributed elsewhere, and what was that process that you went through to try and realize that vision? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, like having a fair bit of terrain yourself can definitely help. So I think I had um, six or seven of the boards in the end were. I provided by myself. Um, I've been quite fortunate in the last couple of years because uh, not only I've been making a fair bit myself, I've in, inherited a fair bit. I got my my partner's uh, dad was he is a war gamer from way back and was getting rid of some stuff and and, and gifted it on to me. Uh, and uh, the a local store closed down and I was able to buy all their store terrain. Well, some of their store terrain really cheap. Um, so I, yeah, I, I've, I've got quite a bit now. So, so being able to do that was um, uh, really useful. Um, but then, yeah, I just reached out to the community and to the players that were coming and just got them to tell me what they had and, uh, and yeah and then i yeah i just got kind of i guess the amazing thing in, in in is in especially in melbourne is they're just at the at the moment especially there just seems to be quite a lot of players really getting to the terrain making uh and making boards and really enjoying that and i'm not sure if that's just a feature of our community here in melbourne or that's happening elsewhere as well but i just yeah there was heaps of people willing to want to put forward terrain um and uh yeah i got people just to tell me what they had uh and then i kind of said you know i probably kind of was building up a list of all the regions and you know i was just kind of fitting them you know i definitely had some key regions myself and i knew of a couple of people like david and kylie who would provide terrain who would you know have out some other key regions so then i was just kind of looking at what people had and where it fit, where it would fit in Middle Earth. And so they'd say, oh, I have this board with ruins and trees. And I'm like, well, that, I think that was Albert. You, you, you were going to mm. give me a board. And, and I was like, well, that could, that could be like a ruins of Arnor. And you're like, yeah, that, that would work. So um, I kind of just tried to fit them in somewhere in Middle Earth. And then I just, yeah, basically just built it up from there with, with just what I could get. And I just, yeah, I managed to get a whole lot of uh, variety of terrain from uh, different people that are able to cover lots of different regions. So um, it's, it, so as you were talking about that, like I was reflecting on um, putting forward my terrain and I, I really wanted my terrain to be at mm. SIL because I kind of see it as a very prestigious event. Mm. And so if my terrain is good enough to go to SIL, it's like, oh, that's awesome. Um, 
and so and you're right Tim I think we're we're very lucky locally to have so many great terrain um, makers but I, I do think that there is something in um, like if you're running an event that lots of people want to go to I think there's probably more um, uh, like people will be more willing to give their their terrain because mm. it's you know seen as um this this great event um so i don't know i don't know if that plays into it certainly it played into it um for me were there any regions that you felt like you couldn't get terrain for or were underrepresented on the day um well in the end there was a few more like because a few people uh, our play account was kind of down a bit from what it was going to be last year um so there were a few regions I did have that didn't end up having like I had kind of like the Shire and around the Shire a bit that um, was kind of yeah a little bit disappointing that 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 didn't happen. Um, well, like you mentioned, yeah. it sounds like the Hobbits decided to avoid this war and they got yeah they got left well enough alone. Yeah, they did. They did. They got left well enough alone. Um, and yeah, I'll, I guess. I didn't really have anything for uh, kind of Mirkwood or anywhere around there. Um, but in terms of like kind of all the major locations from, at least from the Lord of the Rings story, they're pretty much, yeah, it was mostly covered. So, yeah, yeah I think there was definitely a, a good spread. Like you had all the key Gondor areas, you had, for each of the fallen realms more or less a section and yeah i i think yeah really good spread and it let you well i guess did it did it let you um go pretty ham with the the board specific rules yeah well i that's right i i got onto kind of the organizing the terrain quite early um where sometimes if you're doing a uh, just a regular tournament that can be something you can do a bit later on but i i got onto that quite early so that i could know what I had for the boards and then develop the rules specifically for what that board was and um and the yeah and even sometimes specific to the terrain on that board well so one example is uh, David's yeah I played on David Leonard's come on Amon Barad board that he's had for quite a while but it has a a big stone tower that usually sits uh, in the middle, and um, so we made a rule that if you you got into the tower, you could, your stand fast could cover the whole the whole board. Um, mm. That if your leader got in there, yeah. So mm. it's kind of like they go into the tower and they they shout out at their army across the field. So yeah, it was really fun to kind of develop rules that fit around, um, yeah, the the terrain that was there. Yeah, I was just gonna say like on that like specific terrain note, like, you know, actually seeing the boards, is that where you came up with what that table was going to represent as far as scenario? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started with the terrain and, and then worked out what region it would be and then worked out scenario and special rule kind of after that and kind of did that hand in hand kind of, that's that was like when I was working with Josh, working out all the rules. Like I, I'd worked out all the regions and and what terrain I was getting, and then kind of we went through each one and we're like, well, what what would be the best scenario for this board, and what would uh, a good rule be? 
And then, yeah, I did have to change a few of those up when my play count reduced, but yeah, most of them stayed pretty much the same as what they were. I, I just wanted to jump in because I think that that's probably one of the, I don't want to say simplest changes, but probably one of the most impactful, this idea of changing the normal tournament dynamic where everyone's playing the same scenario each round um, and instead viewing it on a table-by-table basis and tailoring it really specifically to the terrain so that it it kind of supports that scenario. It's something that I would love to see other tournaments take up because it is very um, a different way of viewing, you know, it just it's it's just a very different and it's it's a, it's a simple change but it it really changes the dynamic um on the day so um at what point did you um come up with that idea that each each was that in the 2019 sill yeah that was in the 2019 sill that we had each table was a different region in numenor um the the added layer to that that i added for for this year's was that uh, when a region was controlled by a, a player, it would be um, kind of uh, controlled by a team, I should say. When a, a team was, when a region was controlled by a team, that uh, team would have to have a player go onto that board to uh, defend it, uh, and that there would then be an attacker on a defender. Mm. So and then oh, and so that's where you were talking about them matchups yeah. like getting the matchups to work between yes. tables yeah okay, okay. okay. and then up, so we um yeah so we the theme the rules to be some of them would benefit the attacker some of them would benefit the defender and some of them would be neutral mm. yeah mm. yeah so i mean i would already touched on it how the dynamic of the day changed having um you know, not everyone's playing hold ground at the same time. Like it's not a whole room of 40 people playing hold ground. I just wanted to sort of double up on that and say that I think that was brilliant. I think, you know, having not knowing what you're playing next round and it being sort of up to the whims of the table. And then also like while you're playing, you know, your game of capture control and the tables next to you are playing assassination and and then like your team out on the other sides, um, you know, playing hold ground or whatever. It was just really cool because mm. the games themselves ebb and flow differently when you're playing scenario to scenario. So it was cool to see the games playing so differently, you know, simultaneous to each other. Mm. Mm. And it also, from a list building perspective, like, you know, you think about normal tournaments where perhaps you know what the, there's going to be a set series of um, scenarios, like you got the three scenarios of the day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain level of tailoring that you can do, but if if you've got, um, you know, the uh, 20 boards and um, each each one has a separate scenario for it, then chances are you, you you've got a much more uh, a higher chance of having a, a random scenario which is which is awesome yeah no and and we ended up being i think we had well originally when we we're going to have like yeah 20 or more we had to double up on the scenario but in the end it was just 18 which was exactly one per the scenario from the Perfect. match radar so it worked out really well and that was and that was actually made it a bit simpler for for matchups as well, because I didn't have to worry about player playing the same scenario twice. There's 
as long as they were on a different board, they would be playing a different scenario. So yeah. um, I just yeah. had to worry about that. Well, Tim, we've had a, a nice peek behind the curtains with this Silmarillion. Just wondering, can we? what can we sort of expect from any future Sils coming up? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but I definitely have some ideas up my sleeve. Um, first and foremost, with Josh is running a more competitive Silmarilli in June on the June long weekend, uh, which we're calling Sil GT or Sil Grand Tournament. Uh, and yeah, he's seeing this as his kind of like, you know his his um, real kind of last hurrah with Sil. Uh, um, that yeah, and, and then he's going to uh, hand it back over to me a bit more. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be helping out with that. So that's going to be a three day event with a, a doubles event on the Saturday because it's a long weekend, uh, and the singles event on the Monday, uh, Sunday and Monday. So 650 points still. Uh, but yeah, I'll be hoping to announce at that a bit of a sneak peek at next year's SIL, which will be on the June long weekend again. Uh, and yeah, I've got, I, I haven't. I will, I will tell you this, I haven't completely decided on the theme yet. I've got a couple of ideas, uh, one that I'm pretty keen on, uh, but I'm interested in what, if I'm kind of waiting to see if we hear any news about if we're going to get any new releases to coincide with the Amazon TV mm. show because uh, yeah. the idea I have could be affected by that. Just yeah, a, yeah. a bit of a bit of a hint there, a bit of a cryptic. Oh, that's hint. just yeah. the, that's the perfect yeah. uh, the perfect level of uh, hint to let our um, three listeners um, yeah. really <laughs> go to town over. But um, yeah, so I, I may put that idea aside for a future year, and I, I've got a, a different idea that I'm workshopping at the moment for for next year. But yeah. I'll, I'll no no very understandable. I'll make Can't um, give too much away. I think I'm I'm hoping I'll, I'll at least reveal the title at yeah at the end of Sill GT in June. Oh, brilliant! So all those going to Sill, yeah. uh, you get the first glimpse. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, look forward to hearing that title announcement and let the wild speculation um, begin. But um, it's been a, a really great chat. Tim, thanks so much for um, right. giving up your time to to come on and, and talk to us. Um, we thought we would um, do it uh, a, a little after a little time had yeah. passed from the hectic two-day um, event, so um, we could really kind of chew the fat in some detail. So thank you so much for, for coming on and um, sharing all of your advice and thoughts and, and letting us... Um, you know, in on on what actually goes into planning uh, these great um, events. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's been a, a pleasure to to be on your podcast. And um, yeah, it's really great that is uh, guys like you, you know, wanting to really promote the game and do podcasts and stuff like this. I think it's it's so awesome at the moment how much our game is booming with all all these different things going on. So good on you guys. It's it's fantastic. No, thank you. That's a big praise coming from, you know, one of the forerunners and one of the like major 
<laughs> tournament organizers. Um, no, it's been a terrific chat and there's been, you know, lots of insights. Um, hopefully any potential TOs out there can, can glean from this. Um, really great, really great to chat, Tim. Thanks so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. In true Two Towers fashion, we may have forgotten something. Well, yeah, I mean... We forgot to say goodbye. Yeah, it felt a little bit rushed. And um, look, uh, I think we just wanted to take a minute to, again, thank Tim for coming mm. on the podcast. Mm. Um, it was... I found it fascinating. Oh, yeah, Tim. that was a terrific talk. Um, yeah. I'm interested, dear listener, if, you're, if you found that interesting and if you would like us to do some more chats with TOs, because I think it's actually a really fascinating... Um, thing to to cover, yeah, um, and and like uh, you know maybe we can reach out to some of the the European guys. Not that we've mm. been to their tournaments, but like Sus, yeah. or maybe if there's another like brand of person that you would like interviewed, like maybe like some of the tournament winners or something like that, or yep. some of the other personalities that are thrown around. The, you know the the MESVG yep. uh, circles. You yeah, know, yeah, just yeah. shout uh, shout out. Tell yeah, us what yeah. you want. It'd be really interesting to see if people like that kind of format. I know that it, it kind of uh, is a little bit different to what we normally do, but um, uh, I found it really enjoyable. Yeah. And um, if you guys find it interesting, then we're happy to do more of it. We'll roll with it. So, dear listener, until next we are together, have fun hobbying. And have fun gaming. See, see you later. later.